This is your LA Business and Jobs Forecast, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. We explore action plans that you can apply to improve your income, investments, and career progression. Roger Turnaden, Director of Business and Legal Programs for UCLA Extension, is your host. He brings over 30 years of leadership experience with global companies, including Senior Vice President and Director of Worldwide Marketing for American International Group and a similar global position with Transamerica Insurance Group. He is also a certified financial planner an NYU Stern School PhD, and brings years of experience advising private business owners and high net worth individuals. Roger's passion is to better understand the interrelationships and connectivity of global economics and impactful market financial trends. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Some of our listeners expressed more concern about China's threats to U.S. jobs than the impact of artificial intelligence. So today we'll offer you some additional perspectives on China versus our own U.S. economic structural changes. China actually plays a key global financial role in addition to trade competition. They hold $1.2 trillion of U.S. government debt, they employ top U.S. financial advisory firms, and they consequently represent a significant position in the trillions of dollars that move through our stock, bond, and derivatives markets every single day. Most have been hopeful that armed conflicts and outright wars would become relics of the past, but modern warfare can quickly emerge by using the financial markets instead of physical battlefields. Instead of bullets and bombs to destroy a country, we can anticipate possibly hostile deployment of the trillions of dollars that move every day. From debt repayments to loans to arms purchases and also for trade financing, as some holders of U.S. debt sometimes boycott U.S. Treasury auctions, our Federal Reserve becomes the default debt buyer to keep interest rates stable. In recent months, the Federal Reserve has had to pump approximately $200 billion into what's called the repo market as a default buying source of debt, indicating one or more serious issues are brewing in the marketplace, and we're going to talk more about this in the next podcast. Let's start today with China trade especially as this is in the news every day. As we proceed today, I know the contents will sound a bit pessimistic, and I'm by nature someone who is looking for positive actions and personal financial plans. I do hope you'll recognize some of the large risks in the marketplace versus facing surprises or even shocks down the road. Did China take away our country's manufacturing jobs? Here are some official data. You can decide for yourself. First of all, this past year, U.S. jobs in manufacturing were only 8.5% of all the jobs in our economy. We are pretty much at the lowest level in recorded history, and that's a fact. Additionally, the peak percentage of manufacturing jobs in the United States workforce, putting aside World War II, was 31%, and that was in 1951. So in almost 70 years, it's fair to say, we've lost manufacturing as a driver in our economy. 
A part of this loss is increased efficiencies as we covered in the prior episode, but a really big part is the years of U.S. management decisions to build and acquire facilities outside the United States. The media does report that the United States has lost many tens of thousands of factories. Even politicians on both sides don't contest this, so we'll accept it as fact. If you like data, just Google quote, list of Fortune 500 companies in 1970, unquote. And you'll recognize many of the names who have major factories abroad, and they didn't have them before the 1970s. The United States automakers were at the top of the list in terms of 1970 size, and probably everyone has a sense of how large they became in Europe, Asia, and Latin America with respect to auto offshore manufacturing, as well as parts production. If you use a ruler between the 31% in 1951 and the 8.5% last year, you have almost a perfect straight line down. The decline is amazingly consistent through the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, and the 1990s. During these decades, China had just begun to move from a rural to an industrial economy. Their big exports to the United States were cheap plastic and wooden consumer items. Some of you may remember that. Around the year 2000, much began to change, including China's acceptance into the World Trade Organization, which came with enhanced trading privileges. By this time, the United States had already lost the vast majority of its manufacturing jobs, and not to China. No doubt China has added to U.S. manufacturing woes, but some other major influences were at work many years before. Some of you may say, well, how about NAFTA? Well, NAFTA only went into effect in 1994. Again, the changes had already impacted us by then. This is not to say that China and NAFTA don't play a part in continuing the downtrend, but they didn't bring on the downtrend. So you're telling us that U.S. losses of our manufacturing base didn't just happen with Mexico and China? What really happened? And where are we now? Correct. By the way, I'm not defending any country for anything. I'm just using data that rarely gets attention. What happened to our major manufacturing industries can be the subject of a future podcast, but here's my take for now, and this is worth repeating. The 1970s through the 1990s was a period of U.S. business expansion abroad in which our Fortune 500 companies went on an international buying spree, investing in and often taking over many large foreign companies. Pick your favorite industries. Auto manufacturing, air conditioning fabrication, TV and electronics fabrication, chemicals, oil, shipbuilding, beverages, and so much more. Ultimately, all U.S. industry leaders bought into and controlled large European companies while investing in startups and joint ventures in the Middle East, Latin America, and Asia. There were two main business strategies, to diversify into new markets and also to export to the United States marketplace. These investments and ventures resulted in global supply chains, thereby moving U.S. manufacturing jobs abroad during a period in which the dollar was a really strong currency. If a company needed to modernize plant and equipment and even to grow capacity, the decision of where to do it would quickly shake down to finding the lower labor costs and the low tax rates. Today, the United States has low tax rates and a more competitively priced labor force, but that wasn't the case for many decades. Think about China trade this way. Since China joined the World Trade Organization almost 20 years ago, it has become more of a global consolidator Let me just say that again. It's become more of a global consolidator, not just a U.S. competitor. 
moving hundreds of millions of its citizens from farms to their 30 or 40 new cities. Each new city started with 10 to 30 million new residents and all new factories. China took advantage of intellectual property from other countries through joint ventures and other more controversial means, as well as new investments in the most modern manufacturing equipment techniques on a global basis. This massive updating in China is reminiscent of the U.S.-sponsored Marshall Plan that resulted in building the most modern competitive factories in Europe, and that was after World War II, but China used its own trade surpluses each year to bootstrap itself up while maintaining control over the money and their low-income residents. I have one more question about jobs. About 100 years ago, the U.S. was an agricultural economy, and now only a small percentage of workers are on farms. And over the past 50 or so years, the number of people employed in the services industries more than doubled, while manufacturing employment didn't grow at all. Don't we always create and grow numbers of jobs as the economy becomes more advanced? I'm really happy you brought that up. These trends occurred as needed workers were pulled into newly created jobs. The new jobs were like magnets. We needed people to manufacture goods, so opportunities pulled workers away from farms to cities. The next major trend you mentioned was service industries, including product design, marketing, engineering, agents, brokers, drivers, and so forth, pulling needed employees away from manufacturing. The past was quite different, and that's a key point. New jobs were awaiting and demanded. So where are we now? The major trend is replacing or substituting many of the human actions in many jobs across all our companies and industries. Our concern today is that we already have millions outside the workforce and are bringing in artificial intelligence and robotics to increase both goods and services production while actually decreasing human work hours. This is a very different position versus the past hundred or so years. I'm reminded of the Amazon example you brought up earlier. Amazon hired about 40,000 people, but the retailing segment during this hiring period lost over 170,000 jobs, and that's even counting the 40,000 that Amazon hired. Now, Amazon is working to replace human packers with artificial intelligence and robotics, thereby reducing their already efficient distribution center employees. It's hard to see that we're going to create as many jobs as we are replacing. You ask, where are we now? UCLA Anderson School's leaders visited China's industrial areas in recent months. They were surprised, if not shocked, that China's newest manufacturing facilities have so few employees. Their production facilities are large but packed with robotics, real-time data-controlled equipment, and computation hardware. Very few so-called workers. China seems to share our long-term job creation concerns in that modern, digitally controlled machines, including plastics extrusion, robotic assembly, 3D printing, and customized low-production runs, have largely taken over traditional human functions, and that's just the manufacturing. In addition, we have the administrative, the networks, and the communications. Globally, any job that is heavily predictable, routine, and programmable can expect AI and robotic inroads, which replace human activity with no trade unions, no overwork complaints, and no boredom or fatigue. My view is that China became a global consolidator by building on a scale never seen before, including new major cities, 
new modern manufacturing, and importantly, new internal infrastructure with their many high-speed trains and new highway systems. I guess I should ask, where does China go from here? This seems to matter a lot, given they are already a global manufacturing consolidator with incredible people and financial resources. All of what you said is correct, and. China is the recognized global leader in AI development and applications. They have artificial intelligence as a cornerstone of their long-term economic plan from now until 2030. Importantly, they are outspending the United States substantially in AI robotics and communications networking. It's a tall order to begin to displace China's competitive position at this point. Let's take a quick example that's become a really hot item. China today is a clear global leader in deploying the most advanced communication and data movement networks that themselves support future phases of global AI and robotics applications. Conservatively, a 5G network moves data 20 times faster than a 4G network, and a 6G network will move data 20 times faster than a 5G network. So. A 6G network can move data 200 times faster than where we are today in the United States with our 4G network rollout. When we consider the future of autonomous vehicles and data movements throughout a factory network, we are at a clear disadvantage. How important is it that we are behind China in this area? Imagine a truly global supply chain with buyers, sellers, producers transacting 24 hours a day with instantaneous manufacturing decisions made with digitally controlled production equipment distributed throughout the world, so they can be closest to each buyer. Next, imagine that the next generation of supercomputers, called quantum computing, which can solve problems in seconds that now take days or weeks, these capabilities reach far beyond supply chains and into national defense, money movements, and financial markets. So, in summary, China already is the world's manufacturing consolidator and is rapidly becoming the world's leading communication and computing leader. I think I'm getting the message. We already have the experience of millions falling outside the workforce. Many of these are unaccounted for as they're unemployed for more than a year and are kept afloat by social programs. We also have part-time workers who want full-time jobs but can't find them. While at the same time, there is a tremendous demand for highly skilled professionals with really low unemployment rates for this small segment. Exactly. Now that expected lifetimes will be over 100 years old, with a longer retirement period than a working and saving career, our economy and ultimately China's economy will be more and more like a barbell, as I mentioned before. Many at the low-income end drop off, with fewer at the high-income end who enjoy the high-income life. We've covered a lot in these five podcasts, which you can appreciate will help create a personal career plan that has a real future. Don't get distracted by the day-to-day -day politics and the 24-hour news cycle, which can drain your time with no helpful outcomes. All we have covered can be useful and should help you plan improved career outcomes, even though some of the trends are a bit tough to contemplate. We started these podcasts with a discussion of recession, and then moved to both the jobs and financial component relating to recessions and economic growth. We included a focus on the seven trillion dollars per day of dollar movements, given an abrupt change in these movements coming from a supercomputer or a human can turn a small issue into a global crisis.
We summarized some of the disconnects between a highly touted wonderful economy and those who have no savings or retirement security and unavoidable career challenges. Our mission remains the same, to inform and prepare you. Next time, I'll talk about the move to a 0% interest rate marketplace. Opportunities and risks for your debt and investment management are included. We'll cover suggestions for lowering your long-term risks on bond investments. Many of you have bond fund investments that are likely in your own personal retirement portfolio. And we will include new and significant financial marketplace risks that have emerged since mid-2019 that can change interest rates in the upward-trending stock market quite suddenly. Our final podcast of 2019, slated for distribution in early December, will address key financial market issues, which will help you consider whether or not you should own long-term bonds in your own retirement portfolios. Remember to email him any of your questions or comments at rternaden at uclaextension.edu. You're listening to UCLA Extension's Business and Jobs Forecast, expanding your financial mind to grow your financial wallet. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornaden. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.com. We know it's about your life, not just your money.